Welcome to Biohackers Lab, a place where we talk to smart people who are figuring out how to improve health in interesting ways. Join us to discover how you can biohack your life, your body, starting today. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Biohackers Lab. I'm your host, Gary Kerwin, and on today's episode, I have Professor Stuart Phillips. Professor Phillips is a Tier 1 Canada Research Chair in Skeletal Muscle Health. He's a professor in kinesiology and adjunct professor in the School of, at the School of Medicine at McMaster's University in Canada. He's a fellow of the American College of Sports Medicine and American College of Nutrition. His research is focused on the impact of nutrition and exercise on human skeletal muscle protein turnover. Stuart, thank you so much for coming on to the episode today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Gary. Yeah, so um, I came across you because uh, um, it came up on Twitter where someone was talking about protein and kidneys. And uh, yeah, I came across some some great information that you shared about breaking the myth about protein and kidneys. We'll get onto that later on in one of my questions. Sure. But yeah. um, just to begin with, so we're, we're talking about the macronutrient protein today. Would you mind just explaining when we mentioned the word protein today, what, what is protein when we're talking about, about it in this context? Right. So dietary protein um, consists of building blocks. We call them amino acids. There, there are 20 of them, and nine of them are essential to get in our diet. So protein is actually one of the only macronutrients that we have a daily need for, basically because all of our tissues that are made up of protein are being uh, broken down and resynthesized within a given day. We call that protein turnover. Uh, the analogy I like to use, it's as if your uh, muscle or your skin or even your bone, for example, were a brick wall and somebody were putting bricks in one end, but then taking them out in the other end. Now that makes for a, a very highly efficient and well-functioning uh, brick wall, if you like. Uh, but it also means that not all the bricks that are taken out are replaced. And so we have to eat uh, dietary protein. To provide our bodies back with those bricks and particularly the ones that we can't make ourselves, which are what we call uh, the essential uh, bricks, I guess, or amino acids. Okay. And there's nine of those you said. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So um, that takes me on to the next point where, as you mentioned, we need protein every day. So the, the other two macronutrients that if no one um, knows is fat and carbohydrates. So we can we basically need protein and fats definitely carbohydrates we can get away with with not having them, um, yeah. But now the key thing here is a condition called sarcopenia. Is that correct? If we don't get enough protein, right? So uh, sarcopenia um, it's about a, coming up on I would say probably about a forty year old term now uh, coined by Erwin uh, Rosenberg and it, the the Greek roots of the word are it means poverty of flesh. Um, but what he took it to mean was the gradual uh, age-related decline in muscle mass that occurs in everybody. Um, it's imperceptible. Uh, I think at the start, it probably has a rate somewhere between 0.5 and 1.5%, depending on who you are and what you do and you know what your lifestyle is. And um, it doesn't really become apparent in most people until they begin to notice later in their life that certain tasks, for example, getting out of a chair or going up and down flights of stairs become difficult. And so that's when most uh, geriatricians would say, oh, well, look, it's become a problem. 
Um, but we know that probably in people who are pretty sedentary, who don't do a lot, that the process can probably start somewhere in and around uh, your 40s and 50s in, in earnest. You just don't notice it because you have a tremendous reserve. But sarcopenia uh, is a ubiquitous problem. doesn't matter who you are. Everybody's going to get it. Mm. So it is a, a natural age-related um, symptom. I guess, in a way that we will lose this lean body muscle mass, the skeletal muscle. Um, it's just, that's the key thing here is that how fast you lose it depends on, I guess, one of the big topics we talk about today is dietary protein. Can you eat enough protein every day to to slow that, that rate down? Right. So so we're convinced that the, the two main stimuli for muscle um, beyond the the hormonal milieu, which everybody has to deal with, and there's probably little that you can or would do uh, to modify that. For women postmenopausally, I understand estrogen goes down, and if you believe in andropausal changes, then testosterone declines in men. So those are drivers, but for most of us, the day-to-day drivers that keep muscle mass uh, constant are uh, physical activity and dietary protein. So you can find people who are extremely physically active uh, into the latter stages of their life, uh, and you'll notice that they have probably a body phenotype that looks somewhat like, you know, maybe somebody in their 30s or 40s. So it's possible to preserve it, but even uh, the most well-trained athletes, masters athletes, whether they be endurance athletes or bodybuilders or uh, lifters, will inevitably find that this age-related program kicks in. And for most people who don't do as much as these master's athletes, then you're really beginning to talk about um, losing muscle mass at a slightly uh, higher rate. But you can mitigate some of that through dietary protein, yeah. Okay, yeah. I had uh, one of my previous guests was um, a professor, I I can never say her name too, uh, Brzezinska. Uh, Aga, she's in in the US and she studies masters athletes and it was fascinating in hers where you can if you take up exercise and you're still competing in your 90 plus category so yeah you definitely want to keep exercising at any any stage and uh, there's lots of health benefits related to the the rider's statement for the whole thing is that none of this really works too well if you just sit on a couch but I, I think we all get that but um yeah, so, so we usually do our studies against a backdrop. I'm in the Department of Kinesiology. It's always against a backdrop of at least some type of exercise. Okay, yeah, and that's the key thing here. If uh, I guess we'll summarize that already in the beginning here. It's just eat the protein and do some exercise to get the best benefit here. Exactly. Yeah, so um, I'm already interested. A lot of people would say oh, you want to exercise when you're young because you bank more muscle quicker or that it's better? Have you come across that concept of if you've, if you've done a lot of sport when you were younger, that actually helps you when you're older if you were more sedentary? Yeah, that's an interesting concept. I think that there are several sort of lines of evidence that seem to suggest that the banking of muscle, if you like, um, similar to the banking almost of bone mass and then the loss following uh, the menopause with um, osteopenia, osteoporosis, may be a meaningful concept to talk about. In other words, it's not a bad idea to be active when you're young. But I think my definition of what it means to be old is changing now as well, because, you know, in the last 100 years, we've added 
30 plus years to our life expectancy. And so we used to think 60 was old and, you know, it's not. I mean, if you're going to live and be the average person either in the UK or in Canada or, or the United States, so plus or minus a few years, if you're a man, uh, that means average is 78 and, and, and a woman, it means average is about 82 or thereabouts. So uh, the bank better be open for a long period of time, not just your teenage years, but, you know, essentially into your 30s and 40s and beyond. And so, you know, I, I subscribe to the bank, but I don't think it's, you know, if you did it when you were an adolescent or when you were a kid, that it, it holds over. I think you have to do it well into adulthood as well. Yeah, so the key here is, yeah, let, let kids play sport, but you actually need to keep moving. You need to keep stimulating that muscle even beyond into yeah, adult it, years. It, it, sport's a great vehicle, but physical activity comes in many shapes and forms. And so, you know, whatever it is that uh, gets you up and off the couch, which is, you know, that's the transition we know that the, the most health benefits are associated with. Not that I'm not an advocate for doing more. But definitely do something. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so I want to talk about, I know your favorite topic that uh, gets your, your blood boiling, which is uh, the record day, record, recommended daily allowance or RDA or protein. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, before our talk, I did a, a bunch of research where I watched a lot of your um, speeches that you give uh, on on YouTube at different conferences. And I could see how much uh, the, the RDA really irritates you because it's too low in your opinion could you just explain right. that yeah so i have a problem with the semantics of of calling something a recommended dietary allowance because first of all the, i mean the direct implication it's recommended and I, I don't think it should be but we can beg to differ there and it's really all that you're allowed to have so mm. The methodology that's used to establish the RDA is a traditional, what we call nitrogen balance technology. And that's um, basically the protein going in minus the protein coming out. So urine, feces, everything. Um, those experiments are very, very old. Uh, we've known that there are flaws in that method for probably over 50 years now. But it seems to me that we have a lot of data on a not particularly good method and so there's some sort of pseudo logic in that we should still keep using that method um i think it would be fair to say that there's a lack of agreement over what could replace that method but i do think that we're going in the right direction with some new stable isotope methodologies and when you look at all of those methodologies, the recommendation has been, and indeed observational findings have been, that people in their senior years who eat more protein tend to do a little bit better, particularly with the preservation of muscle mass. And so that's the mitigation of the uh, loss of muscle mass to sarcopenia that we spoke about. So um, I don't think there's anything that should be recommended or you know, this is all you should be allowed about the RDA. I think it defines a minimum value to offset nitrogen loss in 98% of the population, but I certainly don't think it's an optimal value. And, you, and the people who set the RDA would freely agree that there's nothing optimal about it. It's designed to offset deficiency. Mm -hmm. We once treated vitamin C the same way as that we titrated a, a vitamin C dose so that you wouldn't get scurvy. And 
yet the recommendation and the realization around vitamin C is that, well, actually, there are some benefits associated with more than just, you know, eating enough vitamin C to not get scurvy. And so uh, I think the two are somewhat analogous in, in terms of talking about protein as offsetting, you know, nitrogen losses, but then, hey, there might be benefits to, to consuming more. I think that's a great point because um, when people look at the RDA, they might think, as you mentioned, the word maximum. Oh, is that the most I can have each day? Whereas it, it's actually that's not the highest that you're allowed to have that day. As you said, it's it's actually trying. It's a it's a value set to offset a deficiency of some sort. Um, but there is potentially a higher value to to live a, to be more optimal in your diet. Um, I think that's a good point that people need to realize when they, when they look at those values. Yeah, I think if we call the RDA the MDA for the minimal dietary allowance, I, I could agree with that. And then levels above that up to probably some cap, but um, definitely uh, not what's recommended in my books. And yeah. more, definitely you're allowed to have more. Okay, well, I'll campaign with you for the MDA, not the RDA. <laughs> it makes much it, it it from a consumer point of view who doesn't understand uh, biology or you know what's happening with the research behind it. It it would be a better marketing term to help educate the masses, I believe. So yeah, yeah. okay. So now we, we're talking about this RDA thing. A, a lot of I've had uh, some nutritionists and, um, as guests in the past and, you know, values start getting thrown out like 0 0.08 grams per kilogram and numbers like this. Uh, if you wouldn't mind just explaining what are those numbers and what are, and some of the ranges um, that we can go into with that. Yeah, so, so 0.8 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight per day, that is the RDA value. Um, so to put it into some context, that would mean that a 50 kilogram uh, woman, so uh, about a 130 pound woman, uh, should be consuming 40 grams of protein. And um, I think to put that in some context, a 500 mil or two cup serving of milk, be it you know skimmed milk or one percent, two percent, contains about 18 grams of protein. So almost half your daily protein would come from two cups of milk. If you threw in, um, say, a moderate serving of chicken, then you'd have all the protein that you would need. So it, it's not a lot of protein. You can, say, double that amount up to somebody who would be a man around uh, maybe uh, 80 kilograms, and you know he would require about 64 grams of protein. And so my point would be is that you wouldn't have to consume much food to hit that target for protein. And so, you know, to my point around, you know, this is once you exceed that, you're consuming more than your body needs anyway. And that's where the myth comes in is your body can make use of protein over and above that amount to a certain extent, can't process protein way forever. But the bottom line is that those numbers are exceptionally low when you look at all the foods that you're taking in and make a percentage. Yeah. So um, I, I, that was actually going to be one of my questions is I, I think whenever I hear those numbers, it's hard to visualize what is 0.8 grams or uh, 40 grams. And that was a great uh, um, visual there to say two cups of milk. 
is 40 grams of no sorry um half it's 18 grams of yeah, uh, two, protein. two cups of milk is about half of the 40 grams that a 130 pound or a 50 kilogram woman would would be looking at so and something like uh, i guess an easy round number would be say 100 grams of meat animal protein um what what would that tend from a protein point of view that's not 100 grams of protein would it be no 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 um so i think most of the the weight in meat depending on where you buy it from is actually there's there's water in it already so you'd have to sort of dry you take all the water out and dry it and then the vast majority depending on the cut of meat uh of what you would have there would be protein but there is you know you can buy different cuts obviously a lot more fat in them so you're really talking about different proportions of fat and protein um but on average a uh, 100 grams of uh say a steak or something that might be about sort of 40 grams of protein or 30 to 40 grams of protein depending on on the type of uh, of cut of the majority obviously the rest being fat but um so that's a fairly healthy serving and your uh nuclear like i said you know the 50 kilogram woman um that'd be it for her that's all she could that's all that's recommended and so she shouldn't need any more protein for the rest of the day so it does give you an idea of just how little um that really is yeah no that is it's a, for me it's a tiny amount of protein in a day just thinking of a of 100 grams um i can think of bacon and they're in 250 gram packets that i buy them at the supermarket and i can easily eat a whole packet of that no problem so um so now we, we we've we've talked about um a, a typical woman's weight but i'm also interested in then um children and the elderly so we've got the two opposite uh, extremes here um children and protein too i mean is there a is there any particular number for any parents listening to this well so k- kids are growing right and so they have greater protein requirements depends on the stage of growth the, if you're an infant just born um, then you have protein requirements that are in excess of two grams per kilo. But remember, you're only weighing about five kilos, so you don't need to get too much protein and you're already there. Uh, that's the most rapid phase of growth in your life. Kids then slow down in terms of their growth until they hit a growth spurt. Um, for the most part, uh, I think the recommendations that are there for kids are probably appropriate. There's not too much that makes me think they've missed the mark there. Um, and those are mostly gleaned from studies of children that are in food insecure regions by adding food back to their diet and watching linear growth. And um, I think most kids have got it just about right. I think as we slide, obviously, to the opposite end, this is where I think the RDA um, is probably woefully underestimating how much protein those people need. Uh, in my opinion, it should be at least 50%, which would be 1.2, or even 100% greater, which would be 1.6 grams per kilogram uh, per day. Okay. And um, on Twitter, there was a tweet going around about uh, diabetics and the the low-carb community and, and numbers there. So is it different even for a diabetic um, or a type 1 diabetic, their, their protein required yeah that that's a good question and i don't know if i can give you a good answer uh so diabetics whether uh, type 1 and type 2 would differ a little bit but um a an anabolic hormone in both of those situations is insulin 
Um, it's anabolic from the, the primary function of it is to store carbohydrates or to promote fat synthesis, but it probably does play a role uh, in being, if not stimulatory, at least permissive for protein synthesis. From what we know, the chances are is that type 2 diabetics are far less efficient at turning protein from their diet into muscular protein um, than the, their age-matched counter, healthy counterparts would be. Um, the, the sort of rider over this, again, is that exercise stimulates all of those processes. So it makes you fundamentally, particularly resistive exercise, makes you fundamentally anabolic. I don't know that I could put a number um, on diabetics and how much protein they, uh, they should be consuming. Uh, with type 2 diabetics, of course, one of the things that you do worry about is uh, kidney disease, renal disease. And there would be a situation where I'd have to put my hands up and fully confess I'm, I'm not a clinician, uh, so I'm not giving medical advice. But you might want to think about how you would judi judiciously balance your, uh, your diet in terms of um, uh, protein and everything else. But if you can get your blood sugar under control and you can manage your insulin and everything else quite quite well, then I think it sort of becomes a moot point is the protein requirements to stave off muscle mass loss would probably be about the same as for the average older person with or without diabetes. Okay. Well, that's a good point. So I'm, I, I guess uh, people don't think about that if they're diabetic, that they're not going to process um, protein as efficiently uh like that i don't hear that talked about much in the circles at all um it, yeah i mean that's what we think happens in people who are older um we you know not my not myself personally but uh, a fellow named mike rennie that i used to work with he called it uh, anabolic resistance so your muscle was resistant to the effect of um having high amino acids to be anabolic so for every gram of protein that you ate the average person would put X percentage of it into their muscle, whereas people who were type 2 diabetic or people who were older put less of it uh, into their muscle. So they're less efficient with how they use their protein to make new muscle. And that's why they tend to have to maybe even eat, as you mentioned, the elderly eat, need to eat more to try, their body's trying to convert at least some more of that because that it's it's available to them. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Okay, fantastic. Um, so... I guess that's already brought me onto the the thinking because that's the the one question I want to bring up. I had um, that one nutritionist I mentioned, Emily McGuire. She was saying how when she deals with ladies on the ketogenic diet, that she tends to find they under eat protein, and that's mm. one of the biggest problems she has to deal with. I mean, do you have any views about people who are uh, going keto to lose weight? We're talking here more versus the therapeutic version for epilepsy. Um, so. It's very fashionable right. now to eat a ketogenic diet to manage your weights, to get your insulin under control, or same with a low-carb, healthy-fat diet. Do you have any views? Are people eating enough protein there? Right. Uh, so, again, I, I, what I come back to is to say that, you know, normally um, eating protein would be sufficient for somebody, no matter what metabolic state that they were in, to stimulate muscle protein synthesis. The less active we get, um, then less of those amino acids go into muscle. 
Uh, I think the most perfect example to illustrate that is everybody has either seen or had their own experience maybe with putting their leg or their arm in a cast and then taking the cast off and saying like, what the heck happened to my arm or my leg? So, you know, temporarily we made your muscle immobile and, you know, it disappeared just about. Um, That's effectively looking at what inactivity does to you in a short period of time. And so if you imagine that over the trajectory of your life, you have somebody that hits this peak muscle mass and somebody that doesn't. And so, you know, you you get the story. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. We think as you get older, there's a contribution of inactivity. We think that there's a contribution of under consumption of protein. And one of the hormones that's markedly, if you like, anti proteolytic and proteolysis is the the process of pulling the bricks out of the wall is insulin. So if you're ketogenic, that hormone is very low. And so you don't have anything that puts the brakes on taking the bricks out of the wall. And if you choose at the same time, if you go, and and I've had only two experiences with uh, older individuals who I've watched this happen to, um, when they went keto and they, you know, they lost lots of weight. So I'm not going to argue with the, the, the weight loss aspect of it. They chose a ketogenic pattern that was low in protein. And for whatever reason, their caloric intake went down as it tends to happen spontaneously or by design on ketogenic diets. And when you looked at the actual amount of protein they were consuming, they were consuming only about 1.1 grams per kilo. So both of these gentlemen were in their 70s. And I think that's a situation where they probably, when they're in a caloric deficit in particular, they actually need to think about increasing their protein intake. Now, the one, um, you know, when you, t- when you talk to people who, who practice keto, what they will say is, well, protein raises insulin. And that's not what we want to happen. And my point is, is that weight loss on a scale might be great, but if you're 70 plus years old and 30, 40% of the weight you lose is muscle, then that to me is, that's not good weight to lose. You know, what you, what you really want to do is practice what we call high quality weight loss. And so that's the as great a percentage of as as is possible of the weight that you lose needs to be fat. Um, two ways to do that: one is to practice anabolic type exercises or exercise. Period. Um, weightlifting, of course, being the, the chief amongst them. But even you know, increasing your physical activity level is is a net retaining stimulus for muscle protein. And at the same time, you need to think about increasing your protein intake. And so choosing high fat foods so that you're ketogenic for sure, but making sure that you have adequate enough protein in there as well. And, you know, it it strikes me as um, it's an odd observation. But in these older guys, when they went keto, they found that their energy, that their appetite was suppressed. That's the point of, you know, part of the point of the diet. And so they were intaking mo- both of them on average about 1,700 calories, which you know, that's not a lot of food for uh, guys that age. And at 1.1 grams per kilo and above, you know, 
40 to 50 grams of carbohydrates and the balance was fat, they were eating a lot of cheese. They were drinking a lot of, um, you know, high fat dairy, so cream. Uh, and they weren't really getting what they needed, which was uh, probably, you know, a decent serving of meat or eggs or those sorts of things. So it's a, it was a choice on their part, I think, through food. But I want to say in general, it's pretty controversial to ask older people who are overweight to, to, to lose weight because you're accelerating sarcopenia. Mm. Um, and, you know, people say, oh, well, they get the weight back and they, they do. They get the weight back, but they don't get the muscle back. Mm. And that's so then you're then you're in big trouble. Yeah, and that's the key point I think I learned from your discussions that you you highlight is that when people lose weight, they don't tend to realize you can lose adipose tissue, which is fat, but also muscle can be lost if you if uh, and I think a lot of people actually lose lean body mass, so skeletal muscle as a part of a big weight loss. So when you hear the big drops, Ab- absolutely, yeah, absolutely, and and, I, and I'm convinced after watching as much as i can stand i admit um the biggest loser mm-hmm. the years that the winner as the biggest loser is always the person who loses the most muscle yeah <laughs> i mean it stands to reason then you know we've said it for years you know muscle weighs more than fat yeah so if we're talking just about absolute pounds lost then Man, you know, you don't want to do uh, resistive exercise. You want to just let that muscle melt right off, and it's, you know, that doesn't make for good TV. I must admit, but and I that's think how you win the yeah. biggest loser. The problem is you gain the weight back, as most of those contestants have. And what you've gained back, well, it's not muscle; it it's fat. Mm. Yeah, and yeah, and muscle tissue is also it's hungry tissue. It's efficient. It will burn energy well, and the and and the intake of food and when you've lost that fuel that sort of burning source yeah then your body doesn't have it anymore um i always teach my undergraduates that if you put a box around yourself and you say what makes up your resting metabolic rate and you boil it down to all of the tissues and their contribution it really comes down to two things one is your liver it's very small but it's highly metabolically active and the other one is your muscle and it's not as metabolically active, but you have a lot of it. So <laughs> you want to hang on to it, you know? Yeah. Nobody's complaining about age-related liver loss, so but <laughs> age-related muscle loss is a, is a big deal. Yeah. So I find it fascinating because um, we, we already mentioned how, say, two glasses of milk could be half the daily intake of protein. And people on a ketogenic diet tend to eat a lot of dairy like butter and cream, but that type of protein isn't enough to offset the problem here. Is what I'm hearing. No, no, it's, I mean, it's high fat, but it's not necessarily high protein. And, you know, don't get me wrong. I like, I love high fat cheeses and I like, I like cream in my coffee and everything, but uh, it's high fat and it's not particularly uh, high in protein. So, uh, I mean, again, it depends what type of keto you are. Mm. Uh, Most keto, most people I know that are on ketogenic style diets would, in all likelihood, consume uh, enough meat to overcome that. Some of the pro, and again, it's very person specific. As people get older, is around meat and could be cost, but is also dentition. Yeah. Um, if your teeth aren't that great, sometimes meat is you know it's a bit of a hassle to chew. So you know they make other choices. Eggs, I would think, would be a normal part of it. But you know, you know well enough. Uh, 
one egg is about five grams of protein. And so you have to eat a lot of eggs. Okay. So that's a good measure again that people can already listen to. Just think one egg is five grams of protein for your day. Yeah. Yeah. And you can work out what your body weight is and how many grams of protein you need a day. How, oh, how many eggs you'd have to eat. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So uh, I, that's why I can hit here already is that yeah potentially because that's uh, the one concept that floats around the community is gluconeogenesis when you eat too much protein and that's a problem when you're going keto um mm. i mean that's that's you touched on that a little bit already with the with um how the body will convert the protein and that you you don't need is that the idea yeah i, I mean i think that there's there's two things the first thing that i mean everybody has to fundamentally realize is that you you can digest a lot of protein. So a lot of people ask me, they say, what's the most protein I can digest? I said, you could eat 100 grams of protein and you would digest it. So it would appear in your blood. The key question and the correct question to ask is really, how much of that protein can I then use? Mm -hmm. um, and, and it's important to realize going all the way from um, you know, fish and, and birds up to mammals is that nitrogen is, is toxic. So we've all evolved the mechanism to take the nitrogen group from the protein. We make urea, uh, birds make uric acid, fish um, get rid of ammonia through their gills. And what's left after you've pulled off the nitrogen is a carbon skeleton. And you have to do something with that. I will say that it's exceptionally difficult to turn that carbon skeleton into fat. And no matter, you know, and I don't want to malign the whole profession, but there's a, you know, registered dietitians have been told that if you overconsume anything, it becomes fat. And, mm -hmm. and that's just not true. Um, however, the carbon skeleton is then available to make blood glucose, for example. Uh, the nice part about gluconeogenesis is, is the feedback regulatory mechanisms would be such that it's not like your body overproduces blood glucose. You don't sort of produce it and kind of, you know, store it away. You could make some liver glycogen, but on the lower carbohydrate diets that would be ketogenic, I don't think that you're going to produce enough glucose from gluconeogenesis that it's going to mess around too much with insulin. Now, people will then say, but protein itself is insulinogenic. And that's true. Um, I won't disagree with that. But I think your body in a ketogenic state can withstand fluctuations within a certain range of insulins and not go out of ketosis to the point where I would say, you know, cut down and go low protein. So it's definitely just high fat, lower protein and obviously low carbohydrates. So um, I've talked to a number of people that practice sort of high protein uh, ketogenic diets and their protein intakes are up in and around the area that I would recommend. So at least 1.2 and up to 1.6 and some guys even higher. So uh, it's possible. Uh, and yet by all measures, they're still in a state of ketosis. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's when I was listening to your um, talks on uh, other conferences. You mentioned how protein isn't converted into fat, so it's your your carbohydrates that you, as a macronutrient can do that if you eat certain kind of fats that can do that, but protein isn't. 
you know, we have the biochemical pathways to do it. All I'm saying is we're remarkably inefficient at doing it. Mm. So um, I, I, I think it's still possible that if you overconsume protein and you were overconsuming some other nutrients or you kept them here, is that you could store more carbohydrate. And but that's not the scenario that we're arguing here or talking about. It's really a situation where it's very low carbohydrate high fat and then high herb protein and plenty of people are out there doing it. So, uh, I, I would, you know, demure to their uh, experience. I have to admit though, that it's, um, you have to dig back in some pretty old literature to answer some of these questions. And it really does come down to a, a pretty good fundamental understanding of biochemistry to, uh, to try and peg the right answer. Okay. So I'm going to go to a little bit of an extreme diet then in protein, which is called the zero-carb diet or the carnivore diet. Yeah. Any thoughts on that where someone could be eating two kilograms of meat a day or plus, so four to five pounds of meat a day? Yeah. Uh, well, uh, as long as you're getting your essential fats um, and and you've got more than enough protein, we you know a lot of their, again, textbooks will say, oh, well, you need... 50 grams of carbohydrate or a hundred grams of carbohydrate to survive, which is, you know, absolute baloney. Um, you can survive on zero carbohydrates. Uh, if it floats your boat, I, I mean, that's an extreme form of diet, but you, you would definitely not be missing out on your protein. And, and again, uh, those people, if you blew into the right meter or you got a dipstick or you measured their blood ketones, uh, they'd be ketotic. And so I sort of, you know, I'm demurring there with the people who say, oh, you need to restrict protein because that's part of ketosis. And, I'm, you know, those people are, they're low carb or zero carb, but they're bordering for the most part on a sort of suit, not, maybe not full on ketosis, but I'd be willing to bet you that their ketone bodies will be higher than the, uh, the average omnivore. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, and um, I mean, thinking of what two kilograms of meat will provide in grams of protein per kilogram there, that's quite a lot, is it? You're good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, it's fascinating. I had Dr. Sean Baker who does that. And, you know, he was saying mm -hmm. how his athletic performance has gone up and his body type and just everything else. And there's a massive community out there too. And listening to their stories, you know, the N equals one experiments and yeah, they, they feel fantastic doing it. So. It's yeah, a, I'm, I I follow Sean on Twitter, so I'm familiar with the uh, with the tweets. And and like I said, I mean, it seems odd to me that I, I mean, diets and foods are so personal. But I mean, when I talk to people and I say, you know, when we test a drug, and not we, but when when drugs are tested, we have the average response in terms of I like to use the example of uh, blood pressure lowering. So. Uh, the average is uh, 10 points on the systolic and eight points on the diastolic. And then we have people who are big responders. So they might get 20 points on the systolic and 16 on the diastolic. And then we get people who, who don't respond. We get nothing. And drug companies, you know, the, the goal is, well, you know, if 50% of the people or more get this, then we'll market the drug because it's going to work, we know here, or better yet, you know, 75%. And there, but there are a group of poor people that just, they don't get an effect from the drug. And so it's not that 
you know, taking one particular type of antihypertensive, you take uh, number two, and then you've got number three right on the heels. So I, I don't know why people should be surprised that certain diets work for certain people. Uh, it, it would seem to make some sort of intrinsic sense that human evolution, the way that, and why we survived on this planet is the ability to adapt. So if you were in a region where meat was scarce, you can find people who do perfectly well on plant-only diets. And in the other you know, sort of realm, you could find people that had lots of meat, it was available, they ate it, and they did just fine. You know, it, that, it doesn't amaze me, and that it amazes other people, and other people say, it's when people start saying, this is the way, that's when I take, I say, it's a way, but it, maybe it's not the way, but, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, food is intensely personal. Oh yes, that's for sure. Very emotional, and <laughs> uh, yeah, if you ever exceptionally, um, that's that's true. As soon as you bring up the diet words, people just uh, yeah. backs up. But, it, but it's the hallmark of human uh, evolution and adaptability to say that we could we could go to one end or extreme or another, and, and and I don't think that there's any adverse consequences. I think honestly, when we began to mix things together. Then, with the introduction of uh, probably two or three modern food additives, that we just absolutely screwed ourselves. So, sugar being number one, I mean, I, I don't doubt that the addition of added sugars to our, our the human food supply was the most egregious nutritional crime that we've ever committed on our on our on ourselves. Yeah, no, I I agree with that too. It's um. And that's why I, I like to bring up these points to help people take action. To, so if someone wants to eat a more carnivore diet, go ahead. You can do that. If you want to be low carb, do that. But maybe think about your protein intake too. It's, um, it's just some great points that you're bringing up about all the different diets that people are wanting to experiment with out there. And that brings me on to my next one then because we're, we're talking about protein and this is always a, uh, and another emotional point, which is vegetable protein versus animal protein. Um, so you mentioned how, when we, when we're using the word protein, we're talking about the, the nine essential amino acids here. Oh, nine. And, um, do, does vegetable protein give you that or is it only animal protein that will give you those? Yeah. So, so proteins are graded on a, on a quality scale and the quality scale includes a measure of the digestibility, uh, of the protein, uh, as well as the essential amino acid content. So um, the more digestible the protein is, the higher score it would get, and the higher the content of all of the amino, the essential amino acids, um, then it would get a higher score. Um, digestibility is adversely affected by dietary fiber, which means that plant proteins traditionally have a lower digestibility. Uh, plant proteins then again um, also have lower essential amino acid uh, concentrations. So. Um, most countries around the world, and this is sort of a fascinating, um, I guess, anthropological or evolutionary observation that have scarce supplies of meat and dairy, have found out that complementary proteins, so beans and rice uh, or a legume and a grain, are sufficient in terms of the essential amino acids to provide as long as you're eating enough of both of those. So. But I think it's fair to say in general that animal source proteins have a higher protein quality. That's just the way they've evolved. 
Um, the other point I would make is a lot of animal source proteins are very nutrient rich. So if you think about red meat, there's iron, there's zinc, there's vitamin B12, things that are shortfall nutrients in older people. Uh, in dairy, there's calcium, for example. There's a lot of potassium as well. So, you know, these are what, what I tend to refer to as no, uh, nutrient rich or nutrient dense sources of dietary protein. So, you can talk about the nutrient package that you'd have to consume to get the same from plants and not that, you know, I don't want to say eating all plants or getting plant-based protein is in any way bad. You just have to be a little bit more judicious about how you plan your diet. So uh, I, I think that's a, a fair comment. And, um, you know, then to reach their own after that. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a great point that people should take away there that there's a a bunch of other stuff that comes when you eat the protein. It's not just protein. There's other minerals involved absolutely. in this. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, so, uh, just trying to get my my thinking back on track here. So, we mentioned uh, some of the myths in the beginning here. This is where I got uh, got stuck in first when I was following you, which uh, is that if I eat too much protein, it's going to create kidney damage. And that's a, that's a myth. You want to blow out the water that everyone should realize. Just don't listen to that. Right. So I think that the genesis of that observation is, is the following. Um, most uh, dietitians do, as part of their training, uh, a rotation on a, a renal ward. And, you know, people coming in for dialysis and are, you know, so they've got uh, chronic kidney disease or people in end stage renal failure. So permanently on a, on a dialysis machine um, are all uh, told to consume lower protein diets. And by lower, I mean now something like 0.6 grams of protein per kilogram per day. And the main reason for that is that you generate less urea as part of a, a very low protein diet and so that's less of a solute that your kidneys have to filter and uh, I think it's fair to say and that's correct that people on a lower protein diet who are in uh, renal failure or who have chronic kidney disease live for longer um, what's incorrect is to make a circular logical argument and say because people that have renal failure are on lower protein diets and they live for longer, that it was protein that caused the kidney disease. And that's, it's, it, it's just circular sort of turning the logic on its head and, and it's not correct. And so um, it's not just my opinion in this case, it's that of the World Health Organization as well as the Institute of Medicine that sets the RDA. And they both have statements that I've tweeted and I've shown at conferences that say that there's no relationship between dietary protein content and the decline in glomerular filtration rate. Now, you can invite me back on the show in, I'm not sure how many months, sometimes it takes longer, but let's say six months. Uh, and I would hope to be able to share with you the results of a meta analysis that we've done that essentially will show. That again, there is no uh, change between high and low protein diets in terms of the long-term impacts of renal function. So uh, it's 
it's perpetuated out there. It's repeated in a number of dietary textbooks, uh, some of which I've used in the past to teach my introductory nutrition class. I write to the authors. I say, you need to change this. And it's changed in a few, but uh, the response rate is about 20%. So I've kind of given up. Um, I just say to my students, I'm like, you, you just don't, you don't need to, uh, to, to read this or listen to this because, uh, and people want to talk about liver failure as well. And, and, and as I've joked before, I'm not sure that it's because the liver is just a brown internal organ and it's, you know, the kidneys in there too. And, you know, the liver has a role in a central role in amino acid metabolism. Nothing is causing your liver to fail. Um, from a protein standpoint. And definitely it's not causing your kidneys to fail, particularly if you're an active um, person. If you have type 2 diabetes, then I begin to say that it's um, a little bit more caution is probably needed. Okay, good. So yeah, I think a lot of, I guess that could be the argument where some people think, oh, I don't eat so much meat or don't eat so much protein or be like a bodybuilder who's eating a lot of protein because you're going to create damage to your detoxing organs like your, your kidneys and your liver as you mentioned but that's as from a physiological point of view that's that's not something that people should be concerned about unless they're in those conditions that you mentioned yeah and i think in the end as well you know a lot of people point to uh, data on uh the longevity of of bodybuilders for example and, and my point is is that uh, you know bodybuilders and I, again i'm probably going to offend somebody by saying this but they they do a lot of other um substances interesting things yeah so that could probably shorten their life so let's just say is that to hang uh protein as the fact that they live for shorter is uh, yeah, let's just say it's it's not necessarily the best case to to use to make the argument. And then the other myth that you like to dispel is, I think, acidosis from eating too much protein, that your body is going to become acidic, and then you're going to break down your bone because you're eating too oh, much yeah. protein. Oh, yeah, dissolving bones. Yeah, so that's a, that's a really old observation that came out of uh, Harvard. Um, Walter Willett was on the study, and they basically, what they noticed is in people with higher protein diets, when they looked at the calcium content of their urine, it was higher. Uh, so they surmised, and it's, it's basically called the acid-ash hypothesis, that sulfur-containing amino acids and protein generated essentially a minor amount of sulfuric acid in your blood. And the result was is that to... Uh, to buffer against this rise in acid, you released alkalining, uh, basically, components of your bone, and you gave up calcium as part of that. So the main point is that the calcium that comes out as a result in your urine is not actually from your bone. It's because on a higher protein diet, your body absorbs more calcium. And so you're actually just getting rid of more calcium. In fact, there was a brilliant meta-analysis just uh, recently completed, um, sponsored by the National Osteoporosis Foundation, that said, this was basically, there's two caveats. One, you have to get adequate enough calcium. So let's say for most people, that's between 1,000 and 1,200 milligrams per day. And you have to get adequate vitamin D. Now, I want to protect, or, or vitamin D, if you're on your side of the Atlantic. Um, 
I don't pretend to be an expert in, in vitamin D, but let's just say it's at least, I'll say it's at least 600 international units. And some people will say, oh, it's 2000. And, and I just, I can't get into that. But let's just say adequate calcium, adequate vitamin D or time in the sunshine, for example. And then when you've got that in place, protein is actually a bone supportive nutrient. It doesn't cause your your bones to leach out calcium and become brittle. It actually helps bone structure. And I, I think it's a newsflash for a lot of people when I say 50% of the composition of your bone is actually protein. Mm-hmm. And they're like, what? I said, it's not just a stick of chalk. Like if it were, our bones would snap all the time, but there has to be some sort of you know, uh, allowing it to end. And I said, that's not just the calcium. I said, that's the collagen protein that gives it this sort of flexibility. And I'm like, wow, it's, I never knew. And I'm like, well, you know, so that's why protein helps bones and doesn't hurt them. And if you don't get enough calcium and vitamin D, I think things are a little bit more dodgy, to be fair. So, and you mentioned it there with collagen. So, you're also a fan of people trying to get natural collagen or gelatin into their system too? Uh, I don't believe that. Okay. <laughs> I'll just come out and say it is that I think that is you know, the bone broth and everything. I have a colleague. Uh, you could have him on the show. His name's Keith Barr. Yeah. Um, he thinks that if you take gelatin before you exercise and high dose vitamin C, that it helps regenerate connective tissue like tendons. Um, I say this and I'd say it in front of Keith. I, you you got to work a little harder to convince me that that's the case. But I'm not saying it's a bad thing to do, but I've yet to see the, the good evidence. But, you know, I stand to be convinced for sure. Okay. But if you take a collagen supplement, then that's, has, that's got all the essential amino acids that you need to. Well, collagen is actually very low in the essential amino acids, but what it does have is a lot of the amino acids that are present in, in, in collagen per se. Uh, I haven't seen anything that would make me think that on a high-protein diet, uh, like if you're a zero-carber, for example, that you wouldn't be getting all of the amino acids that you would need to make adequate amounts of collagen. But again, if you go to the literature on things like collagen supplementation in people, particularly with knee osteoarthritis, uh, there's there's a, I would say it's probably low-quality evidence at this point. But there's some evidence that maybe there's something going on. So uh, I'll just I'll, I'll just basically say, you know what, I reserve my opinion there, but um, I'm not convinced to this point. Okay, yeah, because I, I I think talking about protein, we're talk, we're talking about protein that people chew and eat, but then they take things as drinks too. So collagen would be one collagen powders that you put in smoothies. Um, and then I know you've talked about whey versus soy too. We're not going to get into too much of that because that would be a whole other talk about the benefits of taking whey versus soy and muscle growth. There's just so much we could talk about from yeah, the, a lot, yeah. yeah whole other episode just in that. But the, the diff, I, I love that one. And hopefully I can get you on again to talk about resistance exercise and what you found out with high intensity, low intensity, and uh, what actually happens there too. Yeah. That, was, that, that one's that i mean we've done some controversial stuff in our time but that one probably tops the list of uh the number of hate mails i've received <laughs> after that so. that's why i'm going to get you on to talk about that that, yeah, that, right. that was fascinating <laughs> um are there any other myths that you would like to dispel Stuart, before um our time 
Well, I, I, no, just to echo what I said before, you know, I, I, like I said, it, it, when you read articles in the paper that it says we're all getting enough protein to just remember that the yardstick that they're using is the 0.8 grams per kilo per day yardstick. So it's sort of, you know, if your yardstick is, uh, to me, 25 uh, to 50 to maybe even 100% short of where I think it should be, then we're all getting too much becomes a moot argument when you essentially don't just take my advice, but look at all the work that's been done. Uh, and, you know, it's low. That's mm. the minimum requirement. And we really need to be focusing on what's optimal. Um, and probably over the next 5, 10, 15 years, um, we're hoping that we can produce some of the evidence that will help change people's minds in that regard. Okay. And actually, uh, so I, I just got one more, which is fasting, because that's also very popular now, intermittent fasting. So someone yeah. who wouldn't eat for, you know, typically most people don't eat for, say, 10 hours, but now we're going to 18, 36 or even more hours and they're doing yeah. that. Do you have, have you got a feeling there about if you're not eating for that long and what your body is doing with protein? Well, you, I mean, there's no, there's no doubt if you're doing an intermittent fast that you're catabolic. Uh, you're breaking down fat as fuel. That's the whole, that's the whole point. Uh, you're hoping that you don't overcompensate on, on uh, energy intake, you know, that you've just balanced out the, the fasting period. Uh, but you're definitely breaking down a little bit of muscle protein. My thought is that particularly if you've practiced some form of resistive exercise, the amount of muscle protein that you will lose will be minimal. Uh, the older that you get, probably you're losing a little bit more, but you could probably make up for it by consuming again. Uh, and you set me up perfectly a higher protein diet. So, okay, so that, that's another top tip for anyone who's doing intermittent fasting to manage their weight that on your fasting days, do some form of resistance exercise to minimize the loss of muscle on that day. Yeah, okay, good top tip, excellent. Um, Again, thank you so much for coming on to the show today. Uh, I've learned a ton, hopefully all the listeners too, and tons of actionable tips from that. And I definitely want to get you on at some stage again to, to, to learn more about how to optimize protein management and how to make more muscle as we age too. Fantastic. Great. Thanks very much for coming on today. My pleasure, Gary. Yeah.